You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the last lecture, we talked mainly about the development of physics in the Renaissance times and how it came to maturity through the work of Copernicus and Brahe, Kepler, Galileo and Newton. Now I would like to talk about parallel developments in biology and geology, which also relate to these problems of science and belief. Many of the ancient Greeks were extremely interested in the world of living things, from plants to animals. Aristotle was a keen observer and wrote excellent descriptions of what he saw. Other Greeks, such as Pliny, wrote extensively on natural history. Aesop's fables are stories about animals with a moral attached. The early Christians and the medievals were mainly interested in the world of nature as the image of God, providing symbols of spiritual truths. Thus the pelican plucking her breast to give blood to her chicks is a symbol of Christ shedding his blood for us. The pelican in her piety, as it is called, is still to be seen on the arms of my college in Oxford, Corpus Christi. The natural world was thus invested with layers of meaning which we should try to discover in order to enhance our spiritual life. In the Renaissance, this interest was continued, but now greatly extended by numerous references to the classical authors who were seen as the fount of all wisdom. In encyclopedias like Conrad Gessner's History of Animals, for example, animals were described together with the meanings of their names in every language, the proverbs associated with them, what they symbolized to pagans and to Christians, and all other conceivable connections with other aspects of the natural world and with human life. Initially they were just collected, but later writers, like Aldrovani, wove these associations into detailed webs that were described in a series of huge volumes on birds, insects and animals. This emblematic worldview, as it has been called, came to a rather sudden end around 1650. The new voyages of discovery brought back a whole range of previously unknown animals that had no emblematic meaning so they couldn't be described in the old way. Then people became critical of the old stories about animal behavior and began to ask whether they were true, not what was their spiritual meaning. Francis Bacon summed up the new empirical attitude to nature and rejected the idea that it is a complex of signs revealing God's plan or a web with hidden meanings. Thereafter, the main concern was to describe the natural world as accurately as possible. To seek out what was true. The sciences of biology and geology received great stimulus through the voyages of discovery in the 17th and 18th centuries. For the first time the continents were accurately mapped and specimens of exotic plants and animals were brought back to Europe by the discoverers themselves and by those that followed them. Botanical gardens were established in university cities such as Oxford, Paris, Bologna, Padua and Valencia and zoological gardens followed soon after. The great success of Newtonian physics deeply impressed scientists working in quite different areas such as biology and geology. With Newtonian science, 
modern science had come of age, and it became the paradigm of science, and indeed of all intellectual endeavor. It was optimistically hoped that, by applying the methods of physics, all other sciences could be brought to the same level of achievement. Among the first fruits of the applications of physics to biology and geology were the estimates of the age of the Earth, and these differed very widely, as we shall see in a moment. And faced with this wealth of new information, scientists like Linnaeus tried to reduce it to order by classifying all living things into species, families, and genera, together with many more refined categories. It then became natural to ask how it all came about. Was each species separately created by God, or are they all somehow related to each other? And this immediately raised theological questions concerned with the interpretation of Genesis that are still with us today. The idea that all living things are related received powerful support when Darwin put forward his theory of evolution in his book on the origin of species. Initially, he accepted the general view that each species was separately created, but his experiences on his voyage on the Beagle gradually convinced him that this was untenable. The scientific debate on biological and geological questions soon became entangled with theological considerations and engaged the attention of many of the finest minds of the time. Many of the scientists, impressed by the success of Newtonian physics and Darwinian biology, came to believe that ultimately science could solve all problems, rendering religion superfluous. Men like Spencer and Huxley, and later on Bradlaugh and Wells, were very active in propagating such views, often described as scientism. Christians naturally fought back, and a confused and influential debate ensued, and this still continues today. The application of physics to geology made possible the first crude estimates of the age of the Earth. By measuring the salinity of rivers and oceans, for example, one can estimate how long it would take to build up the concentration of salts in the ocean today. In a similar way, one can estimate how long it would take for a river to carve out a valley. And such calculations gave times of the order of billions of years. This timescale was supported by estimates of the time it would take for species to evolve from primitive forms to the great diversity we see today. The age of the Earth can also be estimated by purely physical methods, and these gave very much shorter times of the order of a hundred million years. They were obtained notably by Kelvin by calculating the gravitational and thermal energy of the Sun. You can also make a calculation assuming that the Earth is a solid piece of coal and all that gave times that are far too short for the geologists and biologists. So this was a very serious problem at that time. The conflict between the geologists and the biologists on the one hand and physicists on the other was eventually solved by the discovery of radioactivity, which provided an additional source of heat that could prolong the life of the sun to times similar to those required by the geologists and biologists. Subsequently, in 1935, Hans Bethe identified the cycle of nuclear reactions that provide the energy of the sun by building up helium from its constituent nucleons. So it is nuclear reactions in the sun that prolong the life of the sun and make possible the timescales needed by the biologists and the geologists. Additional problems were posed by the fossils found in many rocks. They seemed to be the remains of living creatures and thus had to be assigned to an age greater than that of the rocks where they were found. 
And of course, all this evidence required times much longer than indicated by a literal meaning of the Bible. This raised the problem of the interpretation of the Bible, which is particularly acute for those who accept it as a sole rule of faith. They are inevitably faced with the unpalatable choice between rejecting science, on the one hand, or finding a different way to interpret the Bible, which has no justification on their own principles. However, those Christians who recognize that the Church has authority to interpret the Bible have no such problems, and this is the view of the Catholic Church since it was the Church that gave us the Bible in the first place. The vast multiplicity of living things poses two problems. Firstly, can they have developed from non-living matter? And secondly, can the more developed forms of life have evolved from the simpler forms? There are two extreme views on this, the first being that each different type of living form is directly created by God, and the second that there is a continuous development from non-living matter to man without any divine action whatsoever. In 1877, the German biologist Haeckel declared that when the chemical components of the cell are suitably united, they produce the soul and body of the animated world, and suitably nursed become man. And he concluded with this single argument, the mystery of the universe is explained, the deity annulled, and a new era of infinite knowledge ushered in. Since, however, he made no attempt to describe how this actually came about, Statements like this are just wishful thinking with no scientific basis whatsoever. The sheer complexity of living organisms, or even of some of the molecules essential for life, makes it very difficult to see how they could be formed just by the blind operation of natural forces. Detailed calculations by Lecomte de Noy and others showed how extremely unlikely it was that this could have taken place as the result of random forces. Such arguments appeal to some Christians as they seem to offer a scientific proof of the need for the deity. This is, however, a very dangerous argument, invoking what is sometimes called the God of the gaps to explain what is beyond current science. The danger, of course, is that the further advance of science may provide a perfectly natural explanation. The argument then collapses and God's activity appears to be more and more restricted as science advances. If one encounters a difficulty, in understanding some aspect of the natural world, it should be tackled scientifically and not just used as an argument for the deity. God is necessary to explain the whole process, not just one aspect of it which we do not yet understand. Indeed, considerable progress has been made towards understanding the origin of life. In 1952, Miller exposed a mixture of water, ammonia, methane and hydrogen to ultraviolet light produced by an electric discharge and after a week found amino acids in the solution. It is also very likely that further steps in the process take place via substructures, and it is much more likely that these can be formed than that the whole cell comes together from its constituents in one step. Thus, while the problem of the formation of simple living organisms has yet to be solved, considerable progress has been made, and it certainly would be unwise to say that it will not one day be fully understood. The situation is similar for the origin of species. Darwin postulated that the large variations we see are the result of many small variations, some of which are preferentially selected because they improve the organism's chance of survival. This idea was very attractive because it provided a possible way to understand the obvious similarities between individuals of neighboring species. There are, however, serious difficulties. 
Firstly, very long times are needed, but this was eventually shown to be possible as described in the last section. Secondly, it was not clear how these differences arise in the first place. Thirdly, Darwin's explanation could possibly work for relatively small changes such as the celebrated evolution of the horse, but it was far from clear how it could explain, for example, the development of the first bird. In spite of these difficulties, the theory of evolution is held by our biologists, at least as a working hypothesis, because it provides a possible way towards understanding, whereas the alternative of special creation by God of each individual species is scientifically barren. And as the years go by, substantial advances are indeed being made. Unknown to Darwin, an obscure Austrian monk, Gregor Mendel, was already laying the foundations of genetics, which immediately answered one of his greatest difficulties. More recently, the work on DNA has shown the chemical structure of the genes, and we can begin to glimpse how the process of evolution could have taken place. We need not follow the details here, as our main purpose is to study the relation of these developments to religious belief. And to do this, we must first consider the key question of the interpretation of the Bible, in particular the first chapter of Genesis, and then recall the legendary encounter between Wilberforce and Huxley. The first chapter of the book of Genesis is perhaps the most familiar text of the Bible and also the most fundamental. It describes the creation of the world and all that is in it, including man. It is also the text that has given rise to the most controversy and is a perennial source of difficulty, if not scandal. It frequently happens that young people are brought up believing literally in the biblical story of creation and then, when they read the scientific account, reject the Bible as naive and false. Thus Einstein in his autobiography recalled that he abandoned his early religious beliefs at about the age of 12 when he realized that many of the stories in the Bible cannot be true. Furthermore, the Abbe Michonneur, a worker priest, found that the apparent conflict between the six-day creation story was more effective in alienating the working classes from the church than their social injustices. When interpreting the Bible, it is necessary to recognize its vital spiritual message, but in a way that takes full account of scientific findings. It is thus important to recognize that there are obvious internal inconsistencies if the creation story in the first chapter of Genesis is read as literal history. Thus the sun was created on the fourth day, whereas light appeared on the first day, and plants that need the sun's light on the third day. Indeed, the whole idea of creation taking place in a few days is simply ridiculous compared with the millions of years that we know from extensive scientific studies are necessary for the evolution of the universe from its primeval explosion to the present day. And yet, despite this, the biblical account of creation has retained its power down the ages. We should analyze just what it is trying to say and how it is saying it. How authentic is it? To whom is it addressed? Is it really a historical and scientific account of what actually took place? And these and related questions have to be answered before we can read Genesis with full understanding. The Bible was given to us by the church and its infallibility is guaranteed by the infallibility of the church. It is indeed literally true, but this means that it is true not in a superficial verbal sense, but in the sense that it is intended by God to be true. Superficially, it seems that Genesis describes creation as taking place in six days. If a day is taken in the normal sense of the word, it is clearly contrary to the scientific account of the evolution of the universe from the Big Bang 
about 10 to 15 billion years ago, followed by the formation of stars and galaxies in the solar system, and then the geological and biological evolution over hundreds of millions of years. Unless one is prepared to accept theological absurdities, such as supposing that God created rocks complete with fossils, this implies that the word day does not have its usual meaning. Perhaps it can mean some extended cosmological epoch. This possibility has inspired many efforts over the centuries to establish a concordance between Genesis and our scientific knowledge of the evolution of the universe. The initial command, let there be light, can be identified with the Big Bang and the following days with the stages of cosmological evolution. Many prominent scientists have remarked on the close correspondence between Genesis and scientific findings. Thus Arno Penzias, one of the discoverers of the cosmic background radiation that provided the strongest evidence for the Big Bang, has said that the best data that we have are exactly what I have predicted if I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. And Victor Weisskopf declared that the Judeo-Christian tradition describes the beginning of the universe in a way that is surprisingly similar to the scientific model. Such attempts to reconcile Genesis and science have a superficial appeal, but they are fundamentally misleading. Not only do they gloss over many inconsistencies, but more importantly they are based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of Genesis, which is to teach us truths essential for our salvation, and not to provide a historical or scientific account of the evolution of the universe. The Bible is addressed to people of all ages with very different cultural backgrounds and very different levels of knowledge. To be understood, its meaning must be essentially simple and does not require sophisticated intelligence, let alone modern scientific knowledge, for its understanding. Genesis contains three interrelated themes concerning God the creator of all, God the worker, and God the creator of mankind, the summit and purpose of creation. And these convey timeless spiritual truths that establish the foundations of our life on earth. God is the creator. At a particular instant, the beginning, he created the world, effortlessly, immediately, and out of nothing. He is solely responsible for his creation. It is entirely dependent on him, and entirely distinct from him, so that without his conserving power, it would immediately lapse into nothingness. And because it is created by God, the world is essentially good. God is a worker, so in describing creation, Genesis provides a model for man that we should work for six days and rest on the seventh. God did not tire or need to create in stages or to rest, but we have to labor and then must rest. And finally, God is the creator of mankind. He did not need to create, but he did so out of love. He created man in his image and likeness with the power to love God or to reject him. He gave man power over all creation and commanded him to exercise this power responsibly as a careful steward. And these basic truths are conveyed rhetorically, not historically. To emphasize God's creative power, it is first of all stated that he created heaven and earth, that is everything. And then the main parts of creation are listed to emphasize that God created everything. He began, like any worker, by creating the light so that he could see what he is doing. Then he creates the roof nearer to the heavens, and afterwards the earth with the land and the sea. On the next two days he created the ornaments of the heaven, the sun and the stars, and then the ornaments of the earth, the birds and the fishes. 
On the sixth day he created man and the animals that are subject to him, and on the seventh day he rested. This account emphasizes the creative power of God and provides a model for man to follow. Although superficially it may appear to be a historical account, to interpret it in this way is to fail to recognize its literary type. It is enough to recall the contradictions already mentioned, to see that it is rhetorical and not historical. The days are not our days, or even historical epochs. Still less is it a scientific account, in spite of ingenious efforts to correlate the Genesis account with the latest astronomical theories. Genesis was written to teach us truths necessary for salvation, not to teach us scientific knowledge that we can find out by ourselves. Furthermore, any such attempts are always liable to be undermined by further discoveries. The perspective of the Bible is higher than any scientific worldview, however sophisticated, and this guarantees its perennial validity. The story of the debate between Samuel Wilberforce, the Bishop of Oxford, and T. H. Huxley at a meeting of the British Association in Oxford on the 30th of June, 1860, is very well known and is often quoted as an example of a conflict between science and religion. During this debate, Wilberforce tried to pour scorn on Darwin's origin of species, which of course was being eagerly debated at that time since it had only recently been published. And he was vanquished by Huxley, whose scientific sincerity humbled the insolence and obscurantism of Wilberforce. Thus, the pretension of the church to dictate to scientists what conclusions they could reach was decisively defeated and the autonomy of science affirmed. And this debate is very often referred to now as part of secularist propaganda and has become part of everyone's knowledge of the relationship between religion and science. But what actually happened on that day in Oxford? The encounter is described in the October 1898 issue of Macmillan's magazine, an article entitled A Grandmother's Tales. Note the date, 1898. That is almost 30 years after the original encounter. And there said, I was happy enough to be present on the memorable occasion at Oxford when Mr. Huxley bearded Bishop Wilberforce. There were so many of us eager to hear that we had to adjoin to the great library of the museum. I can still hear the American accents of Dr. Draper's opening address when he asked, ere we a fortuitous concourse of atoms? And his discourse, I seem to remember, as somewhat dry. Then the bishop rose, and in a light scoffing tone, florid and fluent, he assured us that there was nothing in the idea of evolution. Rock pigeons were what rock pigeons had always been. Then, turning to his antagonist, Huxley, with a smiling insolence, he begged to know, was it through his grandfather or his grandmother that he claimed descent from a monkey? On this, Mr. Huxley slowly and deliberately arose. A slight figure, stern and pale, very quiet and very grave, he stood before us and spoke those tremendous words, words which no one seems sure of now, nor, I think, can remember them just after they had been spoken. For their meaning took away our breath, though it left us in no doubt as to what it was. He was not ashamed, said Huxley, to have a monkey for an ancestor, but he would be ashamed to be connected with a man who used great gifts to obscure the truth. No one doubted his meaning, and the effect was tremendous. One lady fainted and had to be carried out. I, for one, jumped out of my seat, and when in the evening we met at Dr. Daubeny's house, 
everyone was eager to congratulate the hero of the day. So that is the legendary encounter as described nearly 30 years later in Macmillan's magazine. Several other accounts tell us much the same story and some express regret that contemporary accounts are so few. However, some contemporary accounts do exist and they tell rather a different story. There are two reports of journalists who were actually present and neither reported the tremendous words of Huxley. And in a letter he wrote to Darwin the next day, Darwin wasn't present due to illness, Hooker made no mention of them. There was certainly a vigorous debate. Interest in Darwin's ideas were high and the Bishop of Oxford had strongly opposed the idea that men may be descended from apes. In this he was supported by many of the most distinguished scientists, including Professor Owen and Sir Benjamin Brodie. Darwin could not come because of illness, so it fell to Huxley to defend Darwin's views. Wilberforce had already written a review of Darwin's Origin of Species that was mainly devoted to a scientific assessment of the theory. He made clear that its truth should be judged objectively and emphasized that he had no sympathy with those who object to any facts or alleged facts in nature or an inference logically deduced from them because they believe them to contradict what it appears to have been taught by revelation. We think that all such objections savor of a timidity which is really inconsistent with a firm and well-trusted faith. And these are the views of Wilberforce. So it is very difficult to cast Wilberforce as an authoritarian critic trying to throw doubt on genuine scientific observations. According to the reports in the Athenaeum, another journal, Wilberforce maintained that the facts are insufficient to justify the theory, so that Darwin's conclusions were a hypothesis raised most unphilosophically to the dignity of a causal theory. He noted that some of the greatest names in science were opposed to the theory. There was not one observed case of one species changing into another. Finally, he concluded by denouncing it as degrading to man and as a theory founded on fancy instead of upon facts. He did not reject Darwin's theory because its implications for the nature of man were unacceptable. He showed its falsity and then, and only then, did he express some satisfaction. He claimed that the hypothesis of the survival of the fittest is false and fails to account for some well-known facts such as the absence in the geological record of any case of one species developing into another, whereas the permanence of specific forms is an established fact. Darwin explained this as due to the extreme imperfection of the geological record, and this was later shown to be the case, but in 1860 it was quite reasonable to point out the gaps in the evidence and to argue that at that time Darwin's idea was a conjecture and not a well-supported theory. Darwin acknowledged the force of Wilberforce's criticisms and set about meeting them, pointing out that they were unreasonably stringent in view of the inevitably doubtful nature of the evidence. Underlying the discussion were two views of scientific theories, the one saying that nothing must be accepted until it is established beyond doubt, and the other that we must use the best theory available even if it is imperfect and apparently fails to account for some of the evidence. When one is in the dark, a faint light is better than no light at all. At the time of the debate, Wilberforce could and did claim that the greatest names in science agreed with him, although at least two of them, Lubbock and Hooker, expressed their disagreement. Evolution could not be proved, but it was more than a hypothesis. As Huxley observed, no one objected to the wave theory of light because the undulations had never been observed. 
The great merit of the theory of evolution is that it is the best explanation of the origin of species available. It provides an explanatory scheme and a method of interpreting and unifying a vast range of data. Its great appeal was the way it enabled so many facts to be organized in a coherent and intelligible way. And this was why it was soon adopted by the majority of scientists in the following years. It was then found that many of the factual objections were answered as new data were obtained, although some of the most serious difficulties still remain. It is then easy to see how the disagreement underlying the famous debate came about. Wilberforce was alarmed by the apparent theological implications of the theory, but he criticized it on scientific grounds, as it would not have been acceptable to attack a scientific theory on theological grounds. It was not difficult to criticize it scientifically, and in doing so he was supported by most of the scientists of the time. Huxley, ironically enough, frequently emphasized the duty of scientists never to go beyond what is definitely proved by the evidence. And on this occasion, however, he abandoned that unduly restrictive view and suggested and supported evolution as the best available theory. So this provides another example of the influence of our beliefs on our scientific thinking. Wilberforce the bishop was concerned by the apparent implications of evolution for the nature and dignity of man. Huxley disliked ecclesiastics and wanted to keep them, and indeed all he considered to be amateurs, out of the debate. There was thus a strong underlying tension, and as usual in such situations, both protagonists went rather too far. The real encounter was thus quite different and much more interesting and instructive than the dramatized version forming the well-known legend. It is instructive to contrast the high drama of the encounter between Wilberforce and Huxley with the views of Newman. In an entry in his philosophical notebooks dated the 9th of December 1863, Newman reflects, There is as much want of simplicity in the idea of the creation of distinct species as in that of the creation of trees in full growth, whose seed is in themselves, or of rocks with fossils in them. I mean that it is as strange that monkeys should be so like men with no historical connection between them as the notion that there should be no course of history by which fossil bones got into rocks. I will either go the whole hog with Darwin, or, dispensing with time and history altogether, hold not only the theory of distinct species, but also the creation of fossil-bearing rocks. If a minute was once equivalent to a million years, now, relative to the forces of nature, there would be little difference between the two hypotheses. So in this passage, Newman is not concerned to consider the detailed scientific arguments for and against the theory of evolution, he does not see it as his duty as a theologian to argue for or against the theory. Instead, he simply remarks that in its overall sweep, it is far more plausible than the belief in special creation a few thousand years ago, a view that is still propagated vigorously today. Such creationists, having rejected the authority of the Church as the divine interpreter of Scripture, are now trapped by the superficial meaning of the words, which inevitably leads them to a position that is antithetical both to theology and to science. Newman believed that the Creator lets his work develop through secondary causes, which have imparted certain laws to matter millions of ages ago, which have surely and precisely worked out in the course of these long ages those effects which God from the first proposed. In a letter to Pusey, he addresses the same question. If secondary causes are conceivable at all, an almighty agent being supposed, I don't see why the series should not last for millions of years as for thousands. Thus, Mr. Darwin's theory need not be atheistical, be it true or not. It may simply be suggesting 
a larger idea of divine prescience and skill. This is not, of course, to say that Newman agreed with all Darwin's views. By 1871, Darwin had been a rank materialist for over 30 years, although he concealed this to avoid controversy. In particular, Newman was clear about what should lie behind talk about chance as the causative agent in evolution. In a letter to Mivart, he emphasized that chance is not a cause, because what seems to be chance must be the result of existing laws as yet undiscovered. In another letter, he expressed the view that a theist did not necessarily have to hold that the accidental evolution of living beings is inconsistent with divine design. Adding that it may be accidental to us, but not to God. Finally, a word about science and creationism. There are many Christians, particularly in the United States of America, who hold that the Bible is literally true in the direct verbal sense of the word. And this led Archbishop Usher to say in the last century that the world was created essentially in its present form about 6,000 years ago. It was thus created in such a way that scientists would deduce from their observations that it had immensely longer history. The fossils of fishes found in some rocks do not indicate that many millions of years ago fishes lived in primeval seas, rather, that the rocks with fossils inside them were directly created by God a few thousand years ago. Creationists who hold such views do indeed recognize the power of the Creator, but they do so in a way that is radically unscientific. Their secular opponents attack their belief in creation, and the creationists respond by attacking science. Both groups have grasped one aspect of the truth, but they reject the other, and it is vital to hold together both truths, namely the creation of all by God and the scientific discoveries that have shown how the world has developed over the ages since the instant of creation. So, in the next lecture, I want to turn to developments in the present century, and particularly. The developments of relativity and of quantum physics, and whether those have any theological implications. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.